Hey, this is Tommy. Before we start this episode, I want to tell you about a couple of Southbound Live events we've got coming up here in Charlotte. On February 22nd and March 28th, we're doing panel discussions on the future of Charlotte, featuring leaders from all over the city. We'll be talking about where Charlotte is now and the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. The events will be held at WFAE Center for Civic and Community Engagement in Uptown Charlotte. Tickets and more information available now at WFAE.org slash Charlotte Forward. You know, you're taught, like, read your Bible at least an hour every day, blah, 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 all that stuff. There were many times when I would read Revelation, and I would think, this is too awesome to count as homework. I need... I would very seriously, I would think like, oh man, I'm, I did that for fun. I need to go and find something boring to study instead. Hey y'all, I'm Tommy Tomlinson, and from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Jason Kirk grew up in a series of evangelical churches in Georgia. Those churches shaped and misshaped his life. He has a new novel out called Hell is a World Without You, based on those experiences. It's full of both humor and horror, and rich with the detail of what it's like to grow up constantly worrying about an angry God who seems eager to cast sinners into the lake of fire, especially teenagers waging constant battles with lust and freedom. You might know Jason as one of the hosts of the Shutdown Fullcast, the strange and wonderful college football podcast that has a devoted following. He's also an editor of The Athletic, the sports offshoot of the New York Times. And so, among other things, we talk about the connection between religion and college football and whether there's really much difference at all. Here's our conversation. Jason Kirk, for people who might not have ever been churchified like you've been churchified, could we just start with sort of a baseline, like what kind of church you grew up in, what the sort of general beliefs were, and how they were communicated? So I grew up in Southern Baptist-leaning, Baptist to Baptist, um, sort of the General, I got a good tour of evangelicalism, I would say, from some that were pretty fundy-leaning to a mega church that was very charismatic-leaning. Um, I attended First Baptist Atlanta was my first church where the, the pastor, Charles Stanley, was the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, eventually, uh, I, I went, I bounced around to some smaller churches and, and um, ended up the church I think of as my childhood church. is like my teenage church where the pastor was Johnny Hunt, who was... Also, president of the Southern Baptist Convention uh, and has since had a sex scandal. Honestly, in hindsight, it all just reads to me as basic evangelicalism, like the things people think of as most specifically Southern Baptist. They aren't allowed to dance and they aren't allowed to drink. It's those two things. Those are the two things you always hear. Um, no one ever told us not to dance, like which might have been because we were at a mega church and it was like, oh, we need lots of teenagers here. If we tell them that, they they won't come back. So if, in that sense, it was a bit more of a charismatic leaning than the traditional. We had drums, you know, it, it was all the, uh, it was all that. But at the same time, it was very much a don't drink. Um, so we got a little bit of both. 
but yeah, politically very, very conservative. It was baked in deep, bone deep. So to the point where like over the past few years, you know, 2016 and onward, as lots of America realizes how truly deeply enmeshed um, evangelicalism is with white grievance politics. For me, it's like, oh, there are people who didn't know that. And was this something that your whole family was involved in or was this just you? How, how did that work? It was uh, like whole extended family, I would say, like everybody, everybody like, uh, yeah, my family, all every cousin, everyone is is was church multiple times per Sunday, multiple times per, you know, weeknights. Um, plus, you're reading your Bible every day, all of it. Yeah. At that time, like when you were a teenager, as a, sort of the book reflects sort of a teenage evangelical group. Did you feel like you were like searching for something at that time and that's kind of the tribe you landed in or did you feel like it was sort of against your will or how, how did you feel about that as it was happening? I think the points at which I realized I was capable of seeking were, uh, were later in my teenage years when it was like, all right, I have been taken to this style of religious institution my entire life, never really had a choice. And like, I have, you know, believed that this is the thing to seek that, you know, what I am seeking can only be found within the walls of very specific kinds of churches. Right. And then once I started to have a sense that like, I really don't know if I belong here, which of course that follows a long bout of like, well, if you try hard enough, you can, or if you, if you pummel yourself into a weird enough shape, then you can certainly fit here, which is true for a time. And then you're like, oh, this, this, that hurts too. So, <laughs> but yeah, once I, once I began having the sense that people seek things, I found myself being drawn and that sounds like overly passive, but it's, it's, you know, in a sense, it's very true outside of that of that tradition there's like this just blunt crude blunt force logic that you're supposed to just um pummel everything with uh where it's you know you're given one answer one set of answers you must follow them they must apply to everything if there's anything in life that they don't apply to then that's not a thing to ever think about oh, but i want to i'm a teenager i'm gonna ask questions you know <laughs> oh well too bad um maybe read your bible some more uh, but which parts? There's lots of weird and funny stuff. And no, 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 not that stuff. Just the stuff we tell you to read. Like later in my adolescence, it's like I'm sick of seeing the ways my friends feel about themselves. Um, I'm sick of how I feel about myself. I'm sick of having this sense that like God is some sort of a gigantic, unfathomable mystery. And we are trying to cram God into this tiny little definition. It's just all of it. And like I'm sick of being told that there's only one way to vote. That dichotomy that just emerges that... I managed to ignore for a really long time was like the way Jesus talks and the way Rush Limbaugh talks, they're not the same. I, I've always thought there's sort of this dichotomy in the way Christianity is felt and taught and all between sort of, I think of it as like New Testament people who are like, oh, here's Jesus. He talks about love and peace and helping the poor and all that sort of thing. And then there's like the Old Testament people who are like, the vengeful, wrathful, terrible, you know, bloodbath God. And it's sort of like, you know, love versus fear, basically. And it sounds like you got, like m like many people of your era and my era too, you got a heavy dose of the Old Testament guy, right? Well, I think it's, it's funny. Like when we talk about the God of the Old Testament, it's like the parts that stick in our brains most are the violent and scary parts because like those are the parts that are emphasized, right? Because we're taught like, 
don't make me turn this bus around and go back to that, right? Old Testament God looms for us as this attack dog punishment figure that like, no, no, now we have this new thing, so we don't have to be afraid of. But like, if you if you study the, the Old Testament and like you, you actually read it, there's like, there's so much more about forgiveness and patience and mercy than there is about blood and death and war. So much of the blood and death can be blamed on humans who are waving God like a banner. And it's like, hang on, the, the things that you guys are preaching about how scary it was back then are when you actually look at the stories, they're attributable to people who sound just like you guys, you know. <laughs> and then you look in the New Testament and like it ends with the most violent book in the entire thing. Well, yeah, Revelation is like as it's like an old testament book. I always thought it was like an old testament book that ended up in the New Testament somehow, you know? Well, it's like it fits the um the storyline of the entire thing. Like so much of the Bible is like anti-imperialist, like so much of Genesis is about like we're this tiny little community surrounded by these big communities. Exodus is very explicitly anti-imperialist, you know, and you go all the way through. The prophets are saying like, no, we shouldn't act like these big empires around us. We should be different and distinct and we should actually take care of each other and all this stuff. And then, you know, Jesus from Luke chapter one onward, when his mother says, hi, I'm here to tear down the Roman Empire by having a really cool son. <laughs> um, and and Jesus and Luke over and over and over is saying the most Antifa anarchist socialist stuff you can. And then onward through Revelation, when it's like, hey, the Roman Empire, this big, awesome, the greatest achievement in human history, it's nothing. It'll be destroyed. It'll be demolished. And someday everything will be remade as the kingdom of God, where guess what? Full circle people take care of each other. It is it is absolutely to your point that um, we are given so much of the blood and fire and thunder that like people treat like it's the main thing. There is so much more. God is merciful and justice is fair. And we are uh, waiting for waiting for justice. And like, there's so much more of that stuff in there. And yes, you're right. It absolutely gets overlooked. Well, also, I, I wonder, specifically for, you know, teenagers, you know, obviously, a lot of teenagers are attracted to, like, hardcore music, sort of, you know, death metal stuff. I mean, was that sort of Old Testament, you know, blood and violence and stuff, was any part of that, like, attractive to you as you were, like, a young evangelical kid? Oh, I mean, I got, you know, you're taught, like, read your Bible at least an hour every day, blah, 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 all that stuff. There were many times when I would read Revelation and... I would think this is too awesome to count as homework. I need, <laughs> I would very seriously, I would think like, oh man, I'm, I did that for fun. I need to go and find something boring to study instead. You know, I mean, Revelation, it's got a naked giantess who's eating people. It, it's got, how can a teenage boy not be into that? It's got <laughs> explosions. It's got mountains collapsing on people. It's got monsters. Like, yeah, it's, <laughs> So, yeah, listening to that and being a person who uh, was in, like, metalcore bands in high school and all that, it's, there's, there's definitely a through line there. <laughs> so at what point did you decide you wanted to write a book about all this? It was about, uh, about five years ago. Um, it was a thing where on the college football podcast I told bits of stories, and, you know, every time it was just like, oh, here's a weird memory. And it was like, there's no trauma attached to this. I'm just telling a weird memory. Ha ha ha. <laughs> and then like listeners would respond like, oh, dude, you just unlocked a memory. And I'm like, oh, that's weird. We're just unlocking memories about these things that are just harmless and funny. There's probably something here that's not harmless and funny, right? Because like I left church and then it was just like, I'm never thinking about any of that ever again. I'm just never thinking about it. I'm just done. I'm out. That doesn't define anything about me. It's not core central to my being. It's not, uh, there's no lasting scars or wounds or nothing nice thought right like nice try kid um so like five years ago it just came to a point where it's like okay i'm just gonna start writing and it came out as fiction and i think i, I think i went with 
fiction additionally because that way I could tie together experiences besides just my own. It's like, you know, you write a memoir and it's like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I can carry the action for 300 pages. I'm, I don't think I'm that exciting. But if it's fiction, then it's like, okay, this character, this central narrator, narrated character is not just me. Like he's me and millions of people like me. And I don't have to pack myself into just one character. There's parts of me in every character, you know? So like you just get to, you get to move a lot of stuff around in fiction that you can't in nonfiction. <laughs> right. And you can make stuff up. Although I, I do know from seeing and hearing some interviews with you that some of the stuff that's in the book actually happened to you. I think the one thing that people have the hardest time believing is when like a bunch of guys with guns came in to like a, um, it kind of explained what that was about. So the Wednesday night middle school youth group, we were, you know, sitting around doing kid stuff, singing songs or whatever. Um, it was, it was at the mega church. So it's like, you know, lots of the ocean of folding chairs. Um, and then I know exactly where the room is. I could walk you through it right now. A number of, I usually remember it as like four adult men, might've been more, might've been less, but I remember four came in with rifles, uh, you know, probably some sort of like tactical gear, gloves, maybe masks or whatever. Uh, start waving those around, threatening everyone, deny Christ or we'll shoot you, yelling things like that. Um, just yelling lots of violent threats at these kids, doing this version of like end times theater, like this is what will happen after Jesus is gone and the Antichrist comes, his goons will come attack you if you don't renounce your faith. And this was pre-Columbine. This was before the legend emerged of the young lady at Columbine who was killed, and then the legend emerged that she was killed because she was standing up for Christianity, which is not the true story at all. But she was turned into like this globally fetishized figure. This was before that. And that that was my first indication that like there's something a lot deeper and broader here than what people realize because like Columbine was most people learned about like the Christian persecution martyrdom fantasy. And I was like, I've been living that since I was like six. Like, <laughs> like I read Fox's book of martyrs. You know, I read the DC talk version of Fox's book of martyrs. These books that just like go back and talk about how great it was that Christians were slaughtered hundreds of years ago. And we were taught that like, no, that's what you're supposed to be. That's what you're supposed to want. So when those guys burst in the room with guns, very honestly, I had a thought like, all right, finally, it's my time. It's my time to punch my ticket to heaven. Let's go. And then it's revealed to be just a skit. It's revealed it was just a skit. Uh, these guys were just um, telling a lesson via telling a story. No one ever got in trouble. No one even brought it up or anything. I didn't even think about, you know, that part until it was literally Ryan Nanny on the shutdown forecast. It was like, was nobody sued for this? Was nobody, you know? And I was like, huh, weird. No, no, nobody ever made a peep. We like, we just started playing dodgeball. Like no one, it wasn't anything. Um, and I've talked to friends who were there that night, 15 years later. I'm like, hey, you remember that night? And they're like, oh, weird. Yeah, that was a slightly weird night. Because it, it just didn't register for us as weird. It was just, that's, to me, it's the logical conclusion of a theology about if you disagree with us, you're going to hell. Well, I'd better get you to agree with us then. Anything I do to get you to agree with us is justified if that's the theology. And then, and not only that, if you die, you get to go to this great place. Yeah, it's, the deal gets even better if you agree with us. Don't you really want to agree with us now? <laughs> right, right. So the the main character in this book, Isaac, has this constant chatter in his head from what he believes to be the Holy Spirit, which I think of as like, you know, the, the chatter being this really hardcore Old Testament, like every lustful thought he has, he, you know, regret, you know, stop that you're sinning, you're killing Jesus, you know, all this sort of thing. Does that resonate at all with anything from your life or is that just something maybe you heard from other folks or what? 
So it's really funny and fascinating. I'm like still learning about that literary choice even after the book is completed. That came about because I was seeking sort of a literary device, sort of a metaphor I could keep going through at the entire book that would show the conflict in this kid's head. And the first image I tried to use was a Jenga tower showing that like this is the set of beliefs that you're supposed to have. This is the perfect Christian tower that is supposed to represent, you know, this kid's right about everything and he's on the right path and all that. Right. And what happens in Jenga pieces fall apart. So like as he sees a friend being abused by a youth pastor, a piece falls away. As he hears someone being called a homophobic slur by a Christian, a piece falls away. You know, as he learns something about evolution, a piece falls away. And eventually it's like, wow, that tower is teetering. <laughs> I don't know if that kid's gonna gonna make it all the way to college with his beliefs intact. Then I decided, like, I want this, whatever this this image is that represents um this core set of beliefs that's falling apart, I wanted it to fight back. Like I wanted it to put up a fuss. So like what better way than to make it essentially its own character in his head? You know, at times he believes it's God. Over time, he sort of begins to see some ID, you know, <laughs> somewhere in there. And he eventually finds ways to like argue with it. And like as he is kind of diminishing it, it's gaining power. And this is just a thing that's just like tucked into the narrative as like he's arguing at the mall he's also got this thing screaming in his head as he's playing video games with his friends it's this thing's also yelling in this side passenger that's just <laughs> kind of a devil on his shoulder that he thinks is an angel after publishing it i learned uh, my wife taught me this just a few days ago that there's an actual like psychological explanation for like how our brains work that our brains are essentially like we think of it as that's my brain that's me but it's a bunch of parts and all of our parts of our brains are trying to protect us the ones that are mean to us, the, our little haters in our heads, they're trying to protect us from disappointment, right? Like they're saying like, don't try, it'll turn out bad. And they're not, and those, those parts of us, they're not saying that because they don't want us to succeed. They're saying that because they genuinely are afraid that we won't like the outcomes. So we might as well not try. And so, you know, we have to learn to say like, okay, I appreciate that you are afraid, but we're going to try anyway. It'll be fine, right? And over time, maybe that voice diminishes as it learns like, ah, what's the, what's the use? I can't, <laughs> I can't stop him from trying. So like after I wrote a book with this kid has this constant battle in his head with his voice, I learned like, yeah, that's, that's kind of real. That's kind of how brains work. And I was fascinated. And like my wife was telling me, she's reading this book about like how parts of the brain work. And she's like, yeah, you kind of just, you kind of just wrote this. I was like, oh, cool. I, I just guessed. <laughs> Most of the time that this happens, Isaac, your, your, your main character is apologizing. You say, sorry, oh, I didn't mean to do that or whatever. And it sort of reminded me of what I was taught growing up as a son of Baptist and probably you too, that no matter how poorly you'd behaved in life, you know, if you were a serial killer, but if you repented on your deathbed, you went straight to heaven. It, it felt like to me he was trying to save himself over and over and over again. Mm hmm. Yes. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. I remember as a um, as a young evangelical, like, I don't know how many times I got baptized. It was at least twice in front of the entire church, probably more at like camps and, you know, lakes and, and rivers and whatever. Probably once at the beach at some point. <laughs> like I had I would if I had to guess, it was probably like three, four, five times I got baptized times I got quote unquote saved, said the salvation prayer, said, Dear dear Lord Jesus, forgive me for my sins, come into my heart, I will live for you. And da 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 da. 
please don't make me go to hell is the subtext <laughs> but the number of times i prayed that i it's got to be dozens hundreds i don't know like it, it, there are points it's probably like multiple times a day where i'm like i don't know if that took no one has confirmed i didn't get an email that said yes check ding you're in you're good i don't have a ticket i don't have any confirmation i don't have any joy of the lord i'm not radiating light that people are, we're told you know we're told like if you were living right people will look at you they'll see the jesus in you and they'll just gravitate toward you and want to know what you got i'm like I'm sitting in the cafeteria by myself. No one is gravitating toward me. Therefore, <laughs> I must not be saved, you know? When we come back, Jason Kirk talks about why he donated the pre-order sales from his book to an organization that helps LGBTQ youth. You know, when I was in this world, like I heard the way that my LGBTQ friends talked about themselves and I didn't like it. I didn't know why I didn't like it because I thought, well, the Bible clearly says, you know, I thought that essentially they were right to not like themselves. That and more ahead on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South, I'd be deeply grateful. If you have any thoughts about the show, guests to recommend, or anything that you think might make Southbound better, you can email me at ttomlinson at wfae.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now, back to my conversation with Jason Kirk. Did you feel like when you were growing up that you were like a total outsider compared to your classmates in high school or whatever? Or did, you, or did that tribe give you a feeling of belonging to something? It's really funny how at the time I thought I was this gigantic outcast exile misfit, you know, it's like I'm a Christian at public school and I've been told <laughs> my entire life that that's the demon's hellhole where, the you know, everyone has to get an abortion on day one and then it only gets worse and you can't ever say God, you know, and like after a couple of years of public school, I'm like, dude, there's FCA here. Half my teachers are Christians. I see five Iron Frenzy patches on a backpack every day. I, ha I have all the punk kids. I hang out with the Christian punk kids. Literally, the singer of Third Day shows up at our FCA to speak to us because he went here because it was Christian at the time. I live in freaking Georgia. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but like my tribe tribe was, it's funny. And like a lot of my lifelong best friends like were from church. My wife, I met via uh, Tooth and Nail Records, Christian rock music, like immediately after high school. So like that for me was my tribe tribe at church of all places, like the place we were all trying to escape. But at school, it was like I I had this bizarre sense that I was like a martyr any second now. But I look back and I'm like, dude, you, you had friends at school. You were fine. <laughs> you have in this book, you reveal an incredible encyclopedic knowledge of like Christian rock. <laughs> like there are probably hundreds of bands that you mentioned along the way and in, in one way or the other. And I, I always had the impression that like Christian rock was basically like 
whatever was hot in like the secular world 10 years ago, you know, comes out in Christian rock, you know, eventually. I mean, does that, did you get that feel or something? Or, or did you feel like at the time that what you're listening to was really cool? So it's complicated, right? Like there is a lot of derivative crap. Like there is a lot where that fits that definition. I would first point out that that is true for a lot of secular music as well, right? Like, oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> like uh, Imagine Dragons came out and then every rock band sounds like Imagine Dragons, right? <laughs> um, um, what holds up? I'm actually wearing a Me Without You shirt right now. Uh, Me Without You, Philadelphia post-hardcore band is like respected by basically everyone. Like they're like legit in that scene. In a sweater poorly knit and an unsuspecting smile Little Moses drifts downstream in the Nile A fumbling reply, an awkward rigid laugh And I'm carried helpless by my floating basket raft Your They were signed uh, to like various Christian labels and marketed as a Christian band Even though their like membership includes like Muslims and um they'll sing in like arabic and hebrew which got them in big trouble with christian bookstores as you can imagine um but yeah there's a uh, christian at least christian adjacent, at least abrahamic band <laughs> that that no one will deny they hold up starflyer 59 that's a christian band literally anyone who listens to shoegaze is like no that is a foundational band of the genre there is uh there's a debate early in the book where a couple of my characters are debating like what is the christian music genre that holds up best like what is the one that's least embarrassing right and they determined it is metalcore, this mid-ground between exactly what it sounds like, metal and hardcore punk, um, which is, like, completely true. It's a scene where, like, half the most respected bands started as Christian bands. You know, when that when that scene started to take off in, like, the mid-90s, it was, like, coincided with, like, the rise of Solid State Records and, like, CCM having this actual alternate reality going on. And for whatever reason, it just clicked. Like, to this day, in Birmingham, Alabama, Furnace Fest is, like, the it's like the woodstock of this very specific genre <laughs> um and every single year half the bands are have been at some point christian bands it made me wonder as i was thinking about all these bands the difficulty and it's probably difficult in any generation but i would think about the you know the people who are trying to teach you stuff you know in the in the evangelical church they have to try to teach you stuff from this 2,000-year-old book while at the same time you guys are playing video games, you're listening to all this different music, you're doing like, there's a lot of, you know, early internet chat kind of stuff in this book. And it seems like it would be hard to like stitch those together if you're trying to, you know, get people interested in Deuteronomy, so to speak. Yeah, and honestly, it's one of the reasons why I went so heavy on um, pop culture stuff in here. Like, I tried every, I tried to have every reference be meaningful, like thematically to the setting, to the character, and like I tried not to have it at any point where anyone's like, I don't know what that is, so I'm out on this book. Like, I tried to either explain it or just breeze past it or whatever. <laughs> but part of the reason is for exactly what you say. Like, I wanted to show like there's a lot competing for these kids' attention. In some ways, that's really good. If I'm trying to indoctrinate somebody into a bigoted worldview, you know, and I'm trying to tell them like, you know, poor people deserve to be poor or whatever. And they're like, but I've been listening to hip hop all my life. And on there, they tell me that there are certain government systems that uh, work to keep people poor and that unjust policing uh, is, is part of that as well. So I'm not quite sure that you're right when you, you know what I mean? So like 
for me as a young person hearing that there's this whole evil bad pop culture world that i'm supposed to be terrified of and then when i look at it it's like okay but i saw a movie about like two women who are in love and it seemed like they had genuine respect for each other and they seemed happy about it and you're telling me it's evil so one of you is wrong right yeah that inundation of pop culture was key for me and it's key for my characters as well so i wanted to just lean way way in on it you donated the pre-order proceeds from this book to the trevor project could you explain to folks who may not know about it uh, what the trevor project is and why you decided to do that so the trevor project is um self-help for lgbtq youth um who are at risk of self-harm trying to keep those kids alive we donated the first thirty-nine thousand of proceeds we'll have a bit more after accounting and like an event and so forth so it'll be over forty thousand. i know that much it, it relates to the book in some ways, like our, our our narrator and some other characters like have to learn how to be allies and like our LGBTQ characters have to learn that like they have to learn to love themselves. Like they also learn to love themselves, really. And it's really to me personally, because like, you know, when I was in this world, like I heard the way that my LGBTQ friends talked about themselves and I didn't like it. I didn't know why I didn't like it because I thought, well, the Bible clearly says, you know, I thought that essentially they were right to not like themselves. But it's stuck with me and it's annoyed me my entire life. And, you know, we see in the news all the time there's a, another uh, anti-trans um, law in Florida coming out like right now. So, like, we see the damage that queer phobia does in real life. And I know one of its strongest sources because I was born in it. What would you say your beliefs are now? <laughs> so they fluctuated quite a bit, as you can probably imagine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, are, you, are you talking about like from day to day or just over a longer period of time? At times, though, they're pretty steady. They've been pretty steady for like uh, for like half a year, I guess. I, I think I've come back around to something like after high school, it was like immediately hard pivot to like agnostic phase, you know, where it's like eh, I read libertarian books and like I know everything. And, you know, uh, I like Christopher Hitchens a lot and you know, all that stuff. Very, very college behavior. And then it was just sort of like, I don't care about religion. Don't talk to me about religion for a solid decade, you know. And then I started coming back around to like, okay, I'm kind of spiritual, you know, like eh, there's probably a God or whatever. It doesn't, it's not my problem. Um, I don't really care. Uh, and then I started doing a Bible podcast with my wife, which is really funny. Do you hear the dissonance here? Like, I didn't care much about God. Anyway, I started a Bible podcast with my wife. <laughs> anyway, I started writing a novel about religion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And honestly, those latter two projects and talking with listeners, talking to readers, talking with my wife a lot about like my wife and I talk about religion all the time. We've been married since high school. We did not talk about it. For over 10 years. Next thing you know, we talk about it like honestly almost every day. But I've come back around to, and I did this wishy-washy thing for a while where it was like, I'm not a Christian, but, you know, and now it's like, I have a definition of Christian that works for me. It's not going to work for the people who raise me, but that's not my problem. I believe that the universe is biased toward toward love. I believe the universe is biased toward life. And we can see this in the things that we feel about the universe. I think those things are relevant. I think that's relevant evidence. Why do we feel those things? Like, why are we drawn toward continuance? And why are we drawn toward this sense that we are all in it together, even as the systems we have built push us apart, right? Like economics and politics and whatever push us apart, but like, all of our stories are like, just think about it. All of our stories are about this idea that like, no, all of us are together against this system because there is something bigger than the system that binds us together. It's like so many religious stories, right? So many religious stories, so many like movies, everything. 
So like to me, the fact that we want that is evidence in its favor. It doesn't prove it, but I think combined with other things, combined with lessons from lots of religions and combined with honestly some science stuff, the mystery of consciousness, um, the fact that we have no clue what's going on beyond the walls of our universe or before the Big Bang and, and all of this stuff, all that combines to tell me there's something bigger. The fact that the universe works so much like our bodies and our food chains where it's like one thing destroys another thing, but it does that so that the whole thing can continue, can can create again. It tells a story of like revitalization and rebirth. So I come back around to like, yeah, the universe wants something. What it wants is good. It hasn't gotten it yet. We're not there yet. And like I read the Bible and I see a story of God who wants and hopes and worries and dreads and fears and asks and waits, not a God who dictates and a God who is just plotting out a perfect plan that's carrying itself out. Like I see a God who is working toward all will be made new. So while we're talking about religion, let's also let's talk about football. Yeah, same thing. Um, yeah. Besides all the stuff we've already talked about, you're the co-host of this juggernaut, you know, college football podcast. What are the overlaps, the the synchronicities you see between how people approach religion, how people approach football, especially college football? This is one where it's like, ooh, where to begin, right? <laughs> <laughs> there's one, there's just like tribalism thing, right? Where we're taught that like Alabama people and Auburn people, oh my gosh, they're different species, basically. And, and Ohio State people and Michigan, pe Michigan people, oh my gosh, I, they only speak the same language. And it's like, these people are 99% the same, and then they put different paint jobs on their cars. There's that, and then there's like circumstances have molded them slightly differently. Like 10 years ago, Ohio State fans and Michigan fans talk completely differently. Now that their fortunes have changed on the field, it's it's completely flip-flopped, right? Like their entire personalities are in the process of swapping until Ohio State wins again, at which point they'll revert back. But and, the, and then we see that in religion where it's like, oh, Protestants and Catholics, my gosh, they have nothing in common, completely different. They're raised totally different. They don't have any of the same thoughts or feelings or anything. And yet when I put this book out, Catholics come to me and they're like, oh, weird, you have Catholic guilt. And I'm like, well, let's call it Christian guilt because apparently it doesn't matter which kind of guilt it is, you know? Um, College football, I think, is uniquely inextricable from religion, not just in the obvious ways, Notre Dame, BYU, Liberty, Baylor, da 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 like not just in that way, like literally core to the beginning of college football is muscular Christianity, this idea that we need to make the boys tough for God or whatever, which is like not exclusively American, but very American, right? Like we think of Teddy Roosevelt, most American guy who's ever American. Uh, is also the only reason football survived past like 1905 because he's like, we want it super violent so that the boys will be tough. But, ugh, you know, the liberals are telling me we got to tone it down a little bit. So and like Walter Camp, Amos Alonzo Stagg, like all those guys were very, very, very muscular Christian. Like, listen, we're going to rein this thing in just enough to keep it legal, but we need the boys tough. And like you go back to 1869, the alleged first college football game, Rutgers Princeton. There's like a future. I think it was like the seminarian of a like Dutch Reformed church. There's like a pastor or two. There's like a number. There's a theologian. There's like a number of religious figures playing in that very first college football game. During that game, there is someone on the sidelines who is upset about all the, the ruckus and commotion who's yelling, none of you, you will come to no Christian end. There is a theological debate happening during the first college football game. And like the, the connections have only grown ever since. You're you know, part of this shutdown forecast, which is this big deal now. I remember... Years ago, like 10 or 15 years ago, seeing like YouTube clips of you and Spencer Hall, like sitting on a couch, you know, hollering about college football and stuff. How did that whole thing start and how did it end? It seems like the it's like a Big Bang origin story of its own, right? 
So uh, I ended up, uh, my first job in sports media was at SB Nation, which part of what drew me toward SB Nation was, well, they got this Falcon side I like, and they got, they, they just bought ESVS. They bought my favorite college football blog. I'm going to go work with Spencer Hall. So then uh, 2010, uh, as all good stories start, WrestleMania came to town. <laughs> so I was like, hey, Spencer, let's go to WrestleMania. It was our first ever hangout with WrestleMania. Shortly after that, YouTube approached SB Nation and offered to pay us an amount of money to make content for YouTube, which feels like it's a billion years ago. Imagine YouTube paying someone to make stuff for YouTube. It's like now it's like people's entire careers are just begging YouTube for any attention at all. And YouTube doesn't need to pay anyone for anything because everything gets uploaded there anyway. But at the time, there was just like nothing original on YouTube. It was just like college students posting themselves being drunk and like that was it so like we hired Bomani Jones for a while so I got to call Bomani Jones a co-worker that was very cool Amy Cal Nelson we like hired a bunch of people a bunch of money dumped into it and then it was also like let's start the dumbest college football show we possibly can it was basically like Spencer was one of the biggest personalities there so it was like you know the bosses are like ah yeah you know, let Spencer do whatever I'm sure I'm sure it'll be normal uh, anyway, next thing you know, our producer worked for Adult Swim. We were filming out of an Adult Swim producer's basement. We were literally trying to make the stupidest show we could. And then uh, the YouTube money ran out. I, I don't know why our show wasn't enough to uh, impress YouTube to re-up with us. <laughs> and then Spencer and I are just like, yeah, let's keep this going. Make it a podcast with Ryan and Holly as well. Every once in a while, one of you will mention something about being a niche podcast. And that seems like something that obviously some executive or something said to you guys at some point is there a is there a story behind there that you can tell it was this funny thing where like after we started it our bosses are like oh this is ours now this thing people like yeah this is part of the the vox media corporate offerings we don't have any clue what it is or why people like it like it, it's i won't say names so it's not really gossiping or whatever say like at our very first live show in atlanta like i don't know seven or eight years ago or whatever we had a huge sold out crowd at the High Museum of Art, we had people who were telling us like, hey, we drove in from Kentucky, we drove in from Texas or whatever. And like one of our bosses was standing there and she literally at the bar afterwards, she said, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> After she'd just seen like 250 people going crazy <laughs> for like, you know, it was an awesome night. It was a super fun show. And one of our bosses still didn't get it. And yeah, we heard from some higher ups after that, that they're like, we're thinking about canceling your show. We're like, you didn't start it. You can't cancel it. Wait, if you cancel it, we'll just do it tomorrow at a different, you know, on our own. But yeah, it's, it was the thing where, you know, and, and I say all this jokingly, I'm, you know, I'm not bitter in, or anything. It's like, I get that they don't get it. It's a weird show. It's a weird show about a weird sport. Like for most of America, college football is basically invisible. That's like NFL minor leagues, you know? But yeah, we, we did hear, a few, like the famous one we always go back to and that our listeners really latched on to was uh, one of the media higher-ups, New York City uh, person who lives in tall buildings, um, saw one of our flyers for our Birmingham show that featured Art of Nick Saban, and this person said, I don't even know who that is. And our listeners just love that detail that like you, 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 you run a media company where like all the bills are paid by the sports websites and you don't know who the most famous college football coach is. So yeah, that's sort of been our shorthand. Like to this day, if like from a full cast account, we post a picture of Nick Saban, all the listeners are like, I don't know who that is, <laughs> even though they know it good and well. And then the other thing is for me, that word niche became like deeply personal a couple years ago when like I was sending the book around to like some like publishing industry people. 
to decide like, okay, who's publishing this thing? You know, am I going to wait like four years for uh, someone in New York City to decide that like, oh, evangelicalism, that seems real. Or am I just going to do it right now? And eventually my editor is like, just do it right now. People are going to buy it right now. Why wait? But along the way, I heard from a New York City publishing person who lives in a tall building who was like, listen, the book is voicey. It's I love what you're saying. I love the message. Uh, it's funny. It's just too niche. And I'm like, dog, at that point, that word is a trigger for me. Like, you just call me niche. It's on. So I was I was thinking about this, you know, going back to the evangelical uh, stuff and and you as a teenager being taught, you know, all these terrible things and guys coming in with guns and all this sort of thing. I want to kind of flip it around. Let's say now somebody says to you, here's 20 kids and you got to teach a Sunday school class. What are you going to talk to them about? So uh, I have enough nieces and nephews to know. There is comedy in the Bible. We're going to make these young folks laugh. We are going to find all the Bible's uh, farts. There's there's farts in the Bible. There's <laughs> we're going to find some silly animal stuff. Um, we're going to, we're, there's a talking donkey. What more you want than that? There's there's a guy who gets so mad he tells a bunch of bears to eat a bunch of children. They'll think that's hilarious. We're going to find all the funny stuff. Um, and along the way, they will uh, accidentally learn like, wow, this is like, the weirdest book in the world. <laughs> if someone ever tries to use this against me emotionally, I will just remember the fart jokes. The, I guess I guess it would be like, let's focus on what's funny, not what makes them feel bad. And along the way, sneak in as much like sneaky scholarship as we can that's probably the goal i grew up in a couple of southern baptist churches that were pretty similar to the ones jason kirk grew up in i still get a chill sometimes thinking about going to a church camp in florida where the counselors kept track of who answered the altar call and you knew you better get down there and get on your knees before the week was up it was like being in one of those seminars where they try to sell you a timeshare, except the product was Jesus. Like Jason, I gravitated toward a different kind of faith, one based on love instead of fear. That puts me at odds with a lot of the people I grew up with. I guess we won't know who's right until the role is called up yonder, assuming there is a role and there is a yonder. Until then, I'm going to try to live like the guy who preached kindness and forgiveness and looking out for the least fortunate among us. We are all human and all flawed, and our world can sometimes be hellish. But if that's the case, it stands to reason that we can make it heavenish too. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our editors are Lisa Worf and Jen Lang. Our main theme music comes from Joshua Lee Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the NPR One app, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound at our website. Just go to wfae.org slash podcast slash Southbound. See y'all next time. Thanks for listening.